So let me take you back. You, you, I recall last time I talked to you years and years ago, and you were telling me the story about getting into the industry. You, you came out of the Navy, right? And uh, and uh, your 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 father had a, a, a the shop, right? Tell me that story about that. Were you planning on coming back and working for him? Uh, that the well, plan I uh, <clears throat> I uh, went into the Navy. I was selected for the nuclear propulsion program in submarines, mm. and uh, somehow they took me. And I went through all the all the training, which involved the nuclear power school, which is the, I'm told it's the equivalent of a master's degree in seven months. It was wow. Mm. It was classes eight hours a day for six months with multiple mm. exams. Then we went to prototype, and we actually operated and qualified on an operating land-based nuclear propulsion plant. I qualified on the Nautilus prototype, the same uh, prototype that was used and ultimately went into the USS Nautilus. From there, we went to sub-school, and then we went to a submarine, and you start to qualify all over again on a submarine, and it takes about two years on a submarine to become qualified in given the, you earn the right to wear the dolphins of the U.S. submarine force. So I learned an awful lot in the nuclear Navy. And the man who ran the program, Hyman Rickover, the father of the nuclear Navy, he's <clears throat> between him and my father are the two people have had the most impact on my professional life. And there was an awful lot of uh, pressure on me to stay in the Navy because they had invested many, many dollars in these heads. And uh, my dad had that small company here in Milwaukee and, and he put pressure on me. And I, um, I always wanted to work with my dad, I really did. And uh, so I made the decision to come home. And um, one of the, my proudest things, as I say, I had the privilege to work with my dad for 16 years. And we still remain friends after 16 years. So that turned out pretty well. My dad, um, when he got out of high school in 1938, he answered an ad in the newspaper, Milwaukee newspaper, and he got a job at A. Werner Silversmiths. And Adolf Werner was a German immigrant. He immigrated to Milwaukee as best I can tell about 1870, 1875. And so when my dad worked for him, he was an old man. He was in his late 70s or early 80s. And uh, Werner Silversmith, they did uh, restoration of silver articles, hollowware, flatware. If you remember, turn of the century, a lot of people hated mm -hmm. the silver sets. And they did church work. So my dad got a little bit of an indoctrination into plating on precious metals. The war came, my dad went away to war, came home and asked for his job back and he was given his job back. And, but during the war, Adolf had passed away. So my dad was working with his son, Clarence, and he worked there for about a year and a half and my dad and Clarence didn't get along very well. So my dad got the bright idea to go start his own business. So. He took 400 of his dollars. He got $400 from his father and $400 from a third partner that he met in the industry. And they started artistic plating company. 
Um, he went down to Chicago. He bought a couple of items that you may recognize if you go through a museum. We had a generator, which at one point in my career, I took apart and scrapped. Um, he bought some rheostats and he bought some tanks. The tanks were wooden and they were tar lined. And he, and he started and he used the name artistic because it described what he was doing. You know, they were doing artistic restoration, hollowware, flatware, auto parts, hardware, that sort of thing. And um, <clears throat> they started the business 1948. And we just this year are celebrating our 75th anniversary. So, wow. and my sons are fourth generation. So my dad and my grandfather started the business. Uh, my grandfather knew nothing about plating at all, zero. Um, and then I came along being third generation. My boys are fourth. And now on uh, Matt's oldest son, Luke, is uh, working in the company. Uh, I'm not sure if he's going to stay here. But while he's here, he's fifth generation. <laughs> wow, that's incredible. That's yeah, a huge, rarely gets to that third, I understand, from a lot of the people that talk about it. So that's it's, that's great with that. And so what year was it that you got out of the uh, uh, service with that? I got out of the service 1974. 74, okay. So this year, I came right here. And so this mm -hmm. year is 49 years at... Uh, at the company and and every all the Linsteads that come here, they do everything. You get the garbage jobs, you get the polishing, you get the working environmental, work in the lab, run lines, and uh, yeah, from the bottom up, they've all done everything. <laughs> That's good. That's good. You know, I remember you telling me uh, once that you know when you came back and started working uh, for the company and that. You know, one of the things you did was you actually visited a few shops or maybe I know the story you told me that you visited uh, Milt Stevenson Sr. up at Anoplate and he really opened the doors for you to let you come in and see how they ran their shop. And maybe that was the, uh, you know, back then where, you know, shops wouldn't mind kind of, uh, you know, sharing ideas and sharing thoughts. But I remember you telling me that story, which I thought was great, interesting that he yeah, actually we, kind of... Uh... That was, I think, 1994. Uh, I got the bright idea to get into electroless nickel plating, mm. and I had no idea. You know, we had mm. never done that. And uh, I knew Milt from Surfin, and Milt was such a congenial, warm person. You couldn't help but like Milt. And mm. he just said, you know, we were talking and he said, oh, you want to learn something? He says, fly out to my company. I'll take you around. Well, I did. And he showed me everything. I mean, absolutely no holds bar, you know, how they ran the tanks, how they masked for it, et cetera, et cetera. And that gave me enough confidence to uh, start electroless nickel plating. And you're right. In, in the in my career, in the early part of my career in the 70s, 80s, and 90s, um, there was really a camaraderie among people in the industry. And most of our industry, if you think about it historically, has been family businesses all right. over the country. And uh, same way here in Milwaukee, you know, we've got the Malashevskis at Reliable Plating. We had the Weisses at the uh, Acme plating, we got Alan Henry at Chrome Tech, uh, uh, the Maticottis at Milwaukee Plate, all families, 
all families. And I, you know, you know the families, you know the seniors, you know the kids, you know the grandkids. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's very different. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. What, one, one thing early on, uh, you, you got very involved in the, uh, in, in the association and the industry. And you, I know over the years I've learned that you did a lot of work, uh, especially with environmental issues, did a lot of research to really where there wasn't a lot of research that, uh, I mean, you know, people were, you know, accusing the industry of doing a lot of bad, bad things. And I know, you know, that, you know, you kind of rolled up your sleeves and, and did a lot of research and, and, uh, and worked with the EPA and, and did a lot of things to really show where the industry was and how it was actually, uh, you know, becoming more environmentally friendly uh, with things. That, that was a lot of work and a lot of time and effort that you put into that, didn't you? Well, I sure did. Um, I, uh, what you're talking about probably encompassed about 40 years of my career. Mm. And um, I served for 30 years on the GAC. And I can remember the morning very clearly, I think it was late 1988, and the Milwaukee Metropolitan Sewage District was rewriting its regulations for our industry, and they were proposing some limits. And um, one of the limits they were proposing was for hexavalent chromium in our discharges of one part per billion. One part per billion, 1988. And I, you know, this is very early on in environmental, but it was very obvious that a part per billion was was really unobtainable. It was it was liter it was the method detection limit for hex chrome at the time. And that got me thinking and started and I made some phone calls and we started a coalition in Milwaukee that I was very involved in to um, interact with the POTW here in Milwaukee. And we were ultimately able to um, get limits, local limits that were reasonable. Matter of fact, that paper that we're talking about, mm -hmm. um, that was one of the things I wrote then. I, I got involved and I'm trying to figure out how do they calculate detection and how do you calculate quantitation and so on and so forth. And um, one of the things that I've done, and I've done it twice, um, when this was starting, like you said, there, the regulators thought that all their problems or the major part of their problems more correctly was this industry. So I got the idea, I said, well, why don't we calculate what our industry is giving to the local POTW? So we were we <clears throat> solicited all their records. We got numbers of um, all their influent of all the analytes. And then we had, if you remember, um, uh, by 1985 is when we had a turn on our systems in this industry to control our discharges of, of categorical pollutants. So we had a number of years of data from all the shops in Milwaukee. We knew on this date, they, they were, their chrome number was this, their zinc number was that, and we knew the flow. So we calculated all the poundages of metal from our industry from every shop 
And we also knew what the district was getting in every day because they analyzed for all these metals every day with their flows. So we could calculate the concentration, the flows, both at the POTW and, and us, and we compared them. And lo and behold, that the amount of metals that the industry was contributing to the POTW in Milwaukee was uh, anywhere from five to 15%. The worst number I remember was nickel. I have the, the study in my drawer yet. And uh, so let's take a, a crude average. We only contribute about 10% of their loadings. So that was really an eye opener for them and for us. And we were ultimately able to negotiate something that was reasonable. Now, if you fast forward to 2014, uh, the US EPA was thinking of redoing our effluent guidelines. And uh, they're required to do that by law. Look at the numbers, I think every 10 years or something, you know, they somewhere in their pile of papers that tells them how often they have to do that. And uh, so we were really concerned as an industry, they were going to ratchet down our numbers severely. So working through the GAC and with the policy group, I said, hey, I've got this data in Milwaukee from 19... 89, why don't we do it again and compare the numbers? So we did. Uh, the second time, the government activities uh, through donations from all of our members paid for the, the work to gather the data. And it was not a small amount of money. It takes quite a while to grind all these numbers. And we did. We just mirrored the study and um, for all the categorical pollutants, the zinc and the coppers and the nickels, blah, blah, blah. And we found out that from 1989 to 2014, the industry in Milwaukee had reduced its metal loading by 95%. So in 2014, the average number of pounds per day was about a percent or a percent and a half. I mean, it, it just jumped off the page and said, hey, we've done a good job as an industry. We really have. And I remember I uh, Christian had me go out to DC and I gave a couple presentations uh, behind closed doors at the EPA and it, it impressed them. And I have to say that they listened and they decided we really didn't need to do that. And uh, so, Two things I'm pretty proud of, and it was, you know, it wasn't rocket science, is just ask the question, well, how much do we really contribute to these entities? And uh, what you find out is that the vast, vast, vast majority of the metals that they get in comes basically from the large metro areas, you know, oil and grease dropping out of cars and homes with copper pipes and zinc plated gutters and there, there's no regulation on those folks at all right, so, right. and uh, so we did a good job as an industry but yeah. that was i was gonna say that was fantastic and i know that uh it really sort of uh, kept the wolves at the at the door a little bit longer you know uh, kept them, i know they and it, and one of the things that we've always done as an industry when we go to the agency we say if there's a need and you can prove to us that there's a problem. And if 
the techniques are available economically to respond, the industry will respond, but we're only gonna to respond to data. We're not gonna to respond to perceptions or political expediencies. And unfortunately, I see a lot of that in the uh, PFAS problem right now. A lot of it is perception and, and political expediency for for political gain. Um, it's it's sad and it's such and not a science. Problem. It's not science, no. Right. It really is. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a, yeah. It has been with that. And uh, you know, it's funny. Like you said, while you were doing this, still running your company, I know that. Um, you all made, you know, made a switch to actually, you know, for years, you all were known as artistic uh, plating. And then, you know, you changed the name to you know, advanced plating, I think, to more reflect. Uh, and I think that was right around the time that, that Matt came in, right? I remember, and I know that, if I recall, you guys had put more of a, I remember talking to Matt, you guys had put more of a focus on who you were, who you were going to go after as customers. Uh, I remember him telling me that you all, you and he and all of them had made a decision. You weren't going to go over go after work that could be easily shipped overseas, right? And lose that. And that was really a change in how you all were going to do business, which has really helped you a lot, hasn't it? It really has. Um, you know, for when we got into, we were a job shop doing <clears throat> normal job shop articles. And then we started very slowly to get into uh industrial work. We did some in initial industrial plating for the Kohler company and for this little small Milwaukee company called Square D. Uh, <laughs> and it slowly grew over time. So we had a pretty good base in power distribution. And Milwaukee is the historical center of switchgear in the country. Cutler Hammer, Allen Bradley, GE, Square D, these are all Milwaukee companies. So we did a lot of that work, but we did also a very large amount of decorative, high-end decorative plating for the plumbing industry. And <clears throat> they started to go offshore. And it really started to hurt us. At one point, uh, about 65% of our business was in decorative plumbing. And I would get so frustrated with it because um, it was very hard to quantify what they determined to be an acceptable or unacceptable product. And I remember one day, um, Pat and I were sitting around and we were complaining and um, <clears throat> Matt uh, came here from the Air Force. He's a, a vet. All my sons are vets. I'm a vet. And um, he started to say, you know, Dad, I get a number of people that call me and they say, I found you guys two years ago or three years ago on the internet, but I didn't call you because I didn't need decorative plating. I needed technical mm -hmm. plating. And we said, well, Lordy, Lordy, if, if that's who we know about, how many people are out there that had that same thought process that we didn't know about? And I had always been amazed at American manufacturing that so many companies make very wonderful products, really good widgets, but they have very little knowledge of surface finishing and how it impacts <laughs> their products. And particularly from a corrosion standpoint, the electrical people get it. You got to have silver and 
tin and those sorts of things. But how many times have I seen two dissimilar metals jammed together on something and it corrodes and they come and they say, well, look what happened. And I go, well, yes, it's pretty obvious as to why. So we decided that what we really wanted to do was we were tired of the decorative charade, the the non-quantifiable uh, part of doing decorative finishing. And we were going to sell surface finishing engineering to these companies that didn't have a good grasp on it. Do you remember a gentleman by the name of Ron Mick? I, I do recall the name, yes. Okay, well, Ron worked at Eaton Corporation, and Ron is the only person in my 49-year career that worked for a large company that had a surface finishing engineer in-house. That was Ron Mick, and Ron was great, very knowledgeable. If you want to see some really good metal finishing specs, go read Eaton specs. Ron wrote them. And... That's the only one. And I said, Matt, there's just nobody out there that understands. So we totally switched, changed the name. We had to change our entire customer base. We had to get rid of people who did decorative plating or wanted decorative finishing, be it hardware, be it plumbing, uh, automotive. We were not interested. And we had to put in a lot of different processes. So we decided to expand our precious metals. We put in lead and tin lead. We had electroless nickel and we started to sell surface finishing engineering. And it was a lot harder to do than it was to say. And it took a while. And, you know, to totally change your customer base is not an easy thing. And, uh, Fortunately, we've, I think, pretty successful doing that now. Um, we do a, a very large number of precious metals. We built two new silver plating lines in the last couple of years. Um, we have more than tripled the amount of precious metals that we purchased to deposit. And we do a lot of lead, tin lead, <clears throat> a lot of electroless nickel. And it's all based on engineering queries, if you will. And the most satisfying part that I think we see is that some of our existing customers now, when they're going to build a new widget, they'll call us and they'll say, what do you think? Should we do use this metal or should we use this finish or which finish and which, excuse me, if you, you know, you're looking at all the specs and they got A, B, and C and they don't know which one to grab and so we ask the logical questions. What does this got to do? Where's the point of interest? Where does it actually function? How many life cycles does it need, et cetera, et cetera. And it's been very successful. And <clears throat> Matt has done a nice job looking for engineering problems. And James, who runs our engineering department, he does an awful lot of work when we get a new part in or a prototype and will figure out how we think we want to finish it and we'll run it that way. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. So then we go through a lot of iterations of this and that. And James spends a ton of time out in the plant doing that. And that can be a very, very frustrating exercise at times. But yeah, overall it's been, it's been quite good. Um, And that's what we say. We're a surface finishing engineering firm. We're not a plater and don't come to me and say, let's go golfing and 
trying nickel and dime me to get plating for half a cent a pound cheaper. We're just not interested. So that's yeah. I was gonna say that's very interesting that, that what you say about that and uh, uh, it's like I said, pretty pretty gutsy, right? Pretty smart. Uh, all those and luck, all that stuff moved into one, right? I think it's smarts it's, and <laughs> it's it's got to all roll together. And um, when we had a devastating fire in '96, and uh, we burned our plating building literally to the ground, and Dad and I decided to uh, rebuild the company, which required a, borrowing mm-hmm. a lot of extra money beyond the insurance. And I learned in that that um, I don't call the shots. God does. And I turned the whole company over to him and I said, I was getting worn out and I wasn't, I was getting confused as to what to do. It was just a horrible time. And I finally figured it out that I had to trust him. And I went to bed one night and I said, okay, God, you're in charge. I'm going to work tomorrow. If you want this company to succeed, make it succeed. You want it to fail, make it fail. It's You're driving the bus, I'll get in the bus. So... And that was that was a real important time for me that ninety six ninety seven time frame, and mm-hmm. kind of changing over our our uh, marketing strategy. It's the same thing, you know. You want it to succeed, make it. I'll I'll come to work. See see what happens. Right. It's, been, it's been a fun ride. Well, I was gonna say seventy five years and five generations. You can't beat that. That's the American story right there, isn't it? Yeah, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't. <laughs> but you do learn that nothing lasts forever, right, Tim? That's right. 